So, two classic action movies you have me covering this year. Kind of makes me a little bit sad that Die Hard's not on the list, but that's okay. We've actually covered a couple before now, too, but that's neither here nor there. This, uh, whew. This is one of those 70s, 80s films that honestly probably wouldn't get made nowadays. Oh, I don't mean like in, in they wouldn't make a film like this. What I mean by that is that they wouldn't make a film like this. One of the things I was always impressed by back in the day is that God, those set designs are so realistic and they've done, and, and it's really impressive how, you know, they, they really look like they're sweating and, and struggling and, <clears throat> yeah, so for those of you not aware of why I'm making fun of myself here, they actually did film this sucker in the jungle in conditions that could be considered to be uh, unpleasant. Let's see here. We had the jungle itself, which is obviously a problem. They were doing daily weightlifting to maintain the physique for the shoot. Duh. There was bad water, which led to some um, intestinal issues. They had bad terrain, which was extremely unpleasant, not just for the, the actors, but for the crew and everyone else involved. There was problems with both cold and heat. And poor Kevin Peter Hall, who, by the way, can I just say nails it in this film, uh, nevertheless had massive issues functioning since he was you know, operating under all these other bad conditions, except he had a massive, sweaty, horrible rubber suit on and a mask that basically didn't allow him to see. There was at least two action sequences he had to literally memorize where he was going because in the moment of rushing through, he literally could not tell what he was doing. And so he just kind of had to take it on faith. I actually do like uh, Kevin Peter Hall quite a bit. Some of you might remember him from TNG. Uh, Leor, I believe was the name of the character. I I I'll always remember him as the Bigfoot from Harry and the Hendersons. Am I the only one who remembers that film? Okay, moving on. <clears throat> I know there were two of them, but I only ever really saw the one. Yeah, that being said, this film was one of those uh, Star Wars films. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard me talk about this before, some films just have all the pieces in place, and it's an amazing film. That's a Jurassic Park. Some films have nothing going for them, but somehow miraculously turn into something great. That's Star Wars, A New Hope, specifically. This is kind of the latter, Star Wars, because they had someone uh, who wasn't really known at the time and didn't really have a lot going on. That would be John McTiernan, who just kind of stumbled into the role. And this the script was something that was written by two people who you might be thinking, wait, wait in fact, I'll just go ahead and give you the names because uh, I wrote it down, Jim and John Thomas. And they're not exactly known for being good script writers. In fact, they wrote uh, Predator 2. Executive Decision, okay, not too bad. Mission to Mars, Wild Wild West. But hang on, they lucked into several things here. So I mentioned the John McTiernan thing. That's luck point number one. Uh, you may know him from being someone who uh, worked on Die Hard and Die Hard 3, uh, Hunt for Red October, and The Last Action Hero. And then got into massive legal trouble. Um, <laughs> they also managed to get Alan Silvestri. This is our connection to the Back to the Future rumination we just did. Because the entire reason they got him was because of the fact that they heard of the Back to the Future soundtrack and said, yeah, let's get that guy. So this is yet another iconic sc score that Mr. Silvestri does. And, I mean, some I've heard some people disparage this film. And fair enough, it is an action film. I would not call it brainless. I think it's actually fairly well constructed and surprisingly competent in how it's designed 
But that music is quite distinct, my opinion. But here's the thing. So they brought in uh, him, and they got they lucked out several times. So the first bit of luck was that they managed to get Peter Cullen to do... For the creature, for the predator. The jungle predator, I think, is its official name. Now, he did other stuff, of course, but he didn't want to. He was like, nope, 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 nope. Oh, that looks cool. I'll do that. And the reason it looked cool was because... Well, a person you've probably never heard of called Stan Winston got involved with the special effects team and effectively designed the Predator itself. And even that was partially shaped by Cameron, who made an offhand comment about the matter, which led to the design of the Predator as is, which got us Peter Cullen. Now, Cameron was kind of at his, at the rising star point of his particular career here. And Stan Winston is Stan Winston. I mean, I mean if you don't actually know who the man is, I got nothing, right? <laughs> There's a few people that can claim to be massive special effects gods, and Stan Winston is one of them. But then we had one other little bit of of luck here, because the film was delayed by Schwarzenegger, who at this point was also kind of at the rising star status. And so, well, they managed to get a little bit of extra time for the script and sent it off to David Peoples, who, with his wife Janet, did another pass, on, uh, did a full script pass on it. Now, if you're wondering who that is, well, he wrote Blade Runner. They, excuse me, they, they worked together. They were Blade Runner, 12 Monkeys, and Soldier. All decent sci-fi flicks with action bent. Now, I do not have concrete evidence of this, but I feel that all of these random lucky coincidences that kind of stumbled into each other pretty much directly led to why this film is not just another random schlock film that, you know, nobody really knows about, and would end up leading to the Predator and Aliens vs. Predator franchise, which is still going to this very day. But there's one other person you're probably waiting for me to talk about. That was Jean-Claude Van Damme, who was at an interesting point in his career, that's all I'm going to say about that, but he... they wanted someone to be you know, cat-like, ninja, almost. And and he was a good pick for that. But the suit was kind of, eh, and there was a lot of miscommunication. And, well, the funny thing is, we actually don't 100% know why everything went down the way it did. This is probably another one of those Hollywood moments. Some people say one thing, some people say the other. You know how it is. One way or the other, Jean-Claude Van Damme was upset with the whole shoot. They were not happy with his performance. And he ended up bowing out for whatever reasons. Who knows? As a consequence of that, they ended up having to retool the Predator, which is what led to uh, Kevin Kevin Peter Hall getting involved in the project. Because their cast included people like uh, Jesse Vaughn and frickin' Schwarzenegger when he was still you know, pumping iron. And... Uh, Oh, I can't remember his name. I wrote it down. Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers, who also was in a pretty good shape at this point. And all of them were doing a decent job of trying to bulk up. So they were like, you know what? Why don't we make, why don't we make the Predator huge? Why don't we really massive him up? And what's funny is this is only really shown a couple times in the film, but it's to good effect. But you notice how none of this was intended. This all just kind of stumbled into place. You see why I call this a Star Wars? To be clear, I do like this film. In fact, frankly, I like this film more after going through with analysis mode. But this is probably going to be a short rumination because all I would really be doing is pointing out all the competency and design choices that they made that are good. And honestly, I don't think that's particularly good, you know, 
uh, entertainment. <laughs> you know, that is half of my job here, after all. Or I guess a third of my job. So let's just kind of run through this. Oh, by the way, 18 million budget, 98 million profits. And this is actually funny to me. I looked up some of the reviews. Some of them included things like the fact that this was a very derivative movie, very dull movie with very thin plot, which proves that reviewers never actually pay attention to the movies they're reviewing. I'm sorry, there's some legitimate complaints that could be thrown at this movie. The near total lack of charisma and uh, chemistry between almost all of the principal cast members is a good example of that. The only two cast members who have any chemistry at all is Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and even that is just not as bad as everyone else. Mac sells uh, the, the chemistry he had with Blaine better after Blaine is dead. Anyways, but for all those complaints, I don't think you can say derivative is really a complaint here. And I want to help, I want to kind of explain why, if I might be so bold. As always, curious of your thoughts. The film opens with an alien ship launching something at Earth. That's the very first point, and it's extremely important. Now, granted, when this film came out, trailers were already a thing, and adverts were already a thing, and yada, 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 but it's always a smart thing to have a little bit of a thing just so people know what you're in for. To explain what I mean by that, if, this, if that shot wasn't in, and you knew nothing about this film, Imagine walking into it and watching this, you know, bog-standard Cold Cold War-era jungle military in, infiltration mission thing, and then being like, huh, when the alien shows up. Now, hear me out. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. It would kind of blindside the viewer, and there would be a, a form of suspense there. A form of suspense, that is, we don't know, they don't know. I talk about this a lot, and it's because there's so much that can be done with these various rules of suspense. As a quick reminder, for those of you who haven't heard me talk about this the other 700,000 times I have, there's we know, they know, we know, they don't, we don't know, they do, and neither of us knows. Those are the general rules of suspense, okay? Now, in this case, uh, the actual film, we do know there's an alien, and they don't. Thus, we have a suspenseful situation created. The, the rules of this dynamic now mean that the, the, the status and situation have been altered. The very uh, the, the circuitry of the film has been changed because now we know there's an alien. We know there's some kind of monster thing somewhere and in some way involved. And watching them slowly develop it is like, oh my God, no, don't go over there. You know, it's, it's that type of thing. And they do this extensively and to good effect multiple times. Probably the perfect example of this is when Billy, who is the tracker, is the first one who actually notices anything, and then they find the skinned corpses. They're all bothered by this, of course, but and, which actually helps to indirectly indicate several things. I mentioned there's a lot of little details and some competency on display. You'll notice that these people are portrayed in a almost universally positive light, despite the fact that they are portrayed as hardened military grunts who you know, you know joke and kill people and all that fun stuff. The relevance of that is considering the era in which this film came out in and the obvious anti-military tint that was going through the country that I live in at this point in history, that's surprising in its own right. We do find out that Dutch is actually a vet of the Vietnam War and was involved in Afghanistan. And in both cases, he flat out states, no, I'm, I'm not doing that kind of thing. Like, I'll kill if I have to, but we're a rescue squad. And... Fair enough, right? Like, it's, it's a group of mercenaries who report to the United States military who go on extremely difficult missions because they're really, really good 
which is also a point that's emphasized several times and shown while I'm on the subject. And we're not assassins. We don't do that. Interesting little character points that are just kind of peppered there to try and showcase a, a slight variance in what you might consider to be the norm. Even Dylan, who is portrayed as the evil CIA guy, isn't. Not really. Now, <clears throat> I, I suppose I should rewind. I'm getting ahead of myself. I do apologize. So the alien ship shows up because they found out that Rocky Balboa is running out of opponents and they needed someone else to try and challenge him. Don't blame them. Carl Weathers shows up. We see the assassin line I mentioned. Let's talk about some little touches. I actually wrote down a, a smattering here. So the guy with the glasses, uh, Hawkins, I believe that is, there's a bit where he's just kind of go pouring over his maps, you know. And one of the other guys, I can't remember his name, just tosses a thing at him, and he catches it without hesitation. There's a lot... This is what I mean by little moments. There's a lot of little moments that help to flesh these individuals out a little bit more than you would expect, and to show that they're not completely the archetypes that they are portrayed as. Even Blaine is someone who is not, you know, the dumb big guy. And even the geek is someone who is still entirely competent. We also see that Hawkins consistently is trying to make Billy laugh, just because he wants to make him laugh. He wants to tell a joke that actually catches him. Now, uh, Mac is a good example here, too. Now, Mac, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, just I'll, My pen will have to do. He just kind of shaves constantly, and he's the quiet one. He doesn't really say much. We can tell, and the actor does a good job of this, we can tell he's the one who's probably the most on edge of the entire group. The one who has to kind of do something to keep himself focused regularly. And we also see that he's the one who loses it the most when things actually go badly, which makes sense, again, for someone who is that far on the edge. Although, if you pay attention, they all do something to try and keep themselves focused, to keep them keep themselves steady. We get the impression that this group of military veterans has seen some stuff. That's also important. Keep that in mind for later. Um, looking at my notes here. Uh, the chewing tobacco. Yeah, I already mentioned that kind of. Uh, even the quote-unquote big dumb guy is the specific person they showcase. That would be Blaine. Is the person they showcase actually finding the tripwire and successfully disarming it. Which is the kind of thing you would normally associate with, you know, the tech guy or something like that. But, it again, it shows how he doesn't fully fit into the archetype. This also leads to uh, a couple other awesome moments. Uh, I love the bit where Dylan has the scorpion on him. Dylan completely misses the scorpion. That's one of about five instances where Dylan is shown to not be at the level of the rest of these guys. But he still fits in there better than he probably should. Like I mentioned, there's some kind of decent chemistry, and even though he is manipulating them in order to do a mission for him, he still cares about his men. He does demonstrably, visibly get upset about the situation with Hopper and the team he sent in before Hopper and the loss of these people. This is not a situation he's particularly happy with, and not just because the military op went badly, but because he gives a damn. Again, kind of defying the archetype. Despite the fact that he's the CIA spook, He's also kind of one of them. Um, one last bit before I move on from the details. I'm, like I said, I'm not just going to list all of them, but probably my favorite little detail, which is not that little, is when Mac is firing the minigun into the forest after the Predator. Um, he's, he's He continues to hold down the firing trigger for quite some time after the ammo belt goes dry. And so you just hear the, the barrel spinning. 
you and it takes several seconds for him to finally let that sucker go. Uh, so, <clears throat> the... I should mention something. The special effects here aren't are, are surprisingly mundane, but were still exceptionally difficult to accomplish for the time. They did some really good stuff with it. For the Predator's visual effect, what they had was they had someone in you know of Predator size out there in a big, bright red outfit, which they could then chroma key out, which was easy to do since they were in the middle of the friggin' jungle, and the red was pretty obvious, right? So they chroma key that out. And so what, what they have is a shot of just a space there where nothing's happening. They then put behind that another shot of the same sequence, of the same camera movements, of the same area, but they changed the lens, so it was a wide-angle lens. And then they just superimpose that behind it, and so what you have is that kind of distorted inward look. A very practical way to accomplish it, and while certainly CGI effects can and arguably do look better, I'm always a bit of a sucker for a good practical effect, too. Anyways. <clears throat> so. Uh... Let's see here. Oh, yeah. So, they let, let's get back to where we were. So, they find the skinned corpses. I mentioned back in the Back to the Future 2 rumination that I used to rewatch several movies repeatedly. Would you believe this was one of them, too? Would you also believe Aliens was as well, by the way? I'll talk about that in, I guess, a couple of weeks here. I, I, that is a coincidence, I swear. I didn't stagger anything. I didn't stack anything. It's just by coincidence, you all nominated and then voted for these three films to happen back-to-back before we start the Pixar blog. And I just wanted to comment on that because that amuses me tremendously. Anyways, nevertheless, it took years and years and years and years. Uh, I I think I was actually in high school by the time I finally saw a version of this film which had the skinned corpses in it. I was was like, whoa, what is that? Because I'd seen this film so many times. You see, me and my mom, we had a VCR. And I don't know if it was TNT or what, but we would often go to, you know, the movie channels and just record a movie, edit, you know, and, and then pause. You'd have to sit there, and you'd have to hit pause in the recording when the commercial break shows up, and then unpause when the commercial break is gone, and, you know, and that way we would have local copies of the movies, right? So, apparently, that person in the movie has several things that aren't in the actual movie, you know, several things that were edited out for broadcast. So, that was a bit of a shock the first time I saw that, and it, there's actually a, a decent number of more violent and gory scenes that are simply ejected entirely. Don't worry, I saw those all those in this version. Let's see here. So they hit this they hit the enemy base. This is a straight up action sequence, but it does get across several points very efficiently. This is a very clean op. They manage to take out the perch, they manage to take out the traps. They do a big hit, not only disorienting them but taking out a large group of them, and then they sweep it with no losses and a prisoner to boot. That's impressive. And it's a, it's supposed to be. The whole point is to to showcase and get across the idea of how competent this team is and how well they work together. That's important because it's a good way to establish what's coming up. This is effectively a form of wharf effect. Dutch finds out what's really going on and is pissed that he and his men have been used this way. Expendable assets. Dylan does actually have a decent point. Just a decent point. Not the expendable assets point, because that's stupid. These are not expendable assets. These are extremely valuable people. And honestly, if I'm being completely blunt, I think Dylan does think that way. I think he was just being defensive in the moment, because he was in the moment in the middle of the woods with a bunch of people with guns who hated him. Nevertheless, he does have a point. 
he did send in his men and they didn't hear back from him and sent in Hopper and didn't hear back from him. So he got the best because he, because what the hell? And then they go in and then they find this base. And up until now, the presumption probably has been that this base has been responsible for those losses and the skinned people earlier. So operating from what he knew, this was probably the correct call to make, even though he had to lie to uh, Dutch to make it happen. After all, this was a major offensive, which was being backed by the Russians, which was about to go off and do who knows what, probably within just a few days. So, two two points of the right, the correct call there. Nevertheless, I completely understand why Dutch is so pissed about that, and frankly, I don't actually blame him. This is the kind of thing that should probably be done willingly and knowingly, not being tricked into it. So Matt gets the scorpion, there's the laugh. We see the first tidbit of how the Predator can record voices. Act 1 zooms by, just absolutely zooms through it. And I really like how much work they put into the pacing of this film. It's got some smart editing to it. Again, this is such a competently crafted film, it's almost difficult to comment on it without just sounding banal. But at no point in time is there any point where the film just starts to drag for me. The quiet moments are there, so you can appreciate the action moments, which are almost always followed by quiet moments. It, this is an almost straight-up classic, this type of pacing, which I've showcased many, many times before. Ups, downs. And even the ups aren't all high-octane action. You know, several of the ups are sequences where, for example, Dutch is by himself trying to avoid the Predator and simply not get caught by it. And that still serves as a tension moment, which is still a high, which then leads to the low of him setting the traps and leads to the high of the final encounter. You can see the pattern throughout the course of the film. We also see... <laughs> if I might pause for a moment. This is yet another example of how many things were designed after the fact based on this. That is something I talked about over in Star Wars Rogue One as well. Uh, backloaded storytelling, put simply. the In this film, we see uh, the vision thing. We see the hunting. We see the insistence on some kind of challenge and not going after unarmed people. We see that it can detect traps despite the vision problems. And we see the fact that it takes trophies and all that fun stuff. All of this stuff would later get fleshed out into the Yaucha actual... Culture, society, people, and would then get fleshed out even further in you know comic books and books. I actually read a lot of the AVP books myself back in the day. There was one, I don't remember the name of it. If anybody knows, this would be kind of cool. There's a woman who was actually taken by the Yaucha and has gone off and has been hunting with them for some time. But this is the book right before that. This is why she ends up going with them. Because it was a series with her. Human woman, by the way. And it was like her... And there was an alien infestation, and there was this one predator. And the book would keep bouncing back and forth between the predator and her perspective. It was really well written, and it showed how difficult it was for the two to communicate. But the fact that they were simply by, you know, visual interaction and, and body language and you know, just stuff like that. It was cool stuff. I liked it. Anyways, <clears throat> Schwarzenegger is not exactly what I would call a good actor. But one of the things I'm off, I have often said, and I stand by this statement, is that he's not a bad actor. And I often tend to enjoy the works that he's in, for one reason or another. I mean, I like Commando, to use what I would probably consider one of his worst films. And, you know, I like Last Action Hero, which is awesome. And I like Terminator, and I like Terminator 2, and we can go down the list. You get the idea. Hell, I liked Twins, and Twins was a very troubled film, and I still liked that film. 
But I bring this up because there are a couple moments where he is he he acts reasonably well, and I think that's the main issue with Schwarzenegger's acting style is that it's very narrow. He can do a certain type of thing very well, and ironically, for such a big and imposing person, one of the types of acting he does best is looking it is just the, the the shock and horror kind of a thing, right? There's several moments in this film where this happens. I'll point one out specifically for you so you can identify it or find it for yourself and judge for yourself. Uh, right after, um, oh, I can't remember his name, uh, the one guy, uh, Hawkins, right after Hawkins is killed, right in front of Anna, he goes over and he's like, oh my God, what what happened? What happened? And the camera's right up on his face and uh, I can't remember his name. It's the guy whose name I can never remember. The other guy is over there in the background. He says, uh... I think I found Hawkins. Are you sure? I, I I can't tell. And as he says that, Schwarzenegger's face just kind of goes... Like as he realizes and processes what that means. And he walks over and he's, we see him looking down at what's left of the man's intestines. And there's just this... Okay. And you can see how much it's affecting him. What's funny is the other thing he's good at is being the implacable man, but that's neither here nor there. Anyways, so, uh, video game idea. Play as a predator. I know, I know, you're going to point out that there's lots of predator video games. I don't think there's ever been one of the style that I'm about to describe. Picture an area, like there's a square space, and it could be wherever, right? Jungle, desert, grass world, lava world, boom, boom, boom. And city, you know, whatever. And you're a predator. You have the full kit at the start, or maybe you can select your kit at the start. And there's a group of people. They're trained and they're capable and they know what they're doing. And there's probably at least one person amongst them who is a civilian. Your goal is to take out all of those people. Doesn't matter how you do it. That's the, that's, it's, it's kind of any percent, right? Just take out that group of people. Don't hit the civilians. Good. And they have their own predefined path that they'll take. And they're cautious. Like, they're paying attention and they're moving through and they're protecting. And they'll stop and put up camp and set up watch and all that fun stuff. And your job is to use the cloak and the the, the scans and the gun and the, the whatever else you have at your disposal in order to try and take them out one by one or as a group or however it is you actually manage it. And yes, I realize I'm basically describing a variant on Hitman. But damn it, it's an amazing gameplay model. I think it could work. Bonus idea. Imagine playing the group <laughs> as like a co-op thing, full co-op kind of campaign, and you're going through the mission. It's like, okay, we need to keep watch, and we need to thin. And there's like the AI or another player playing the predator going through. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so there, <laughs> the uh, so they split up, and that leads to the death of Blaine, and this leads to an interesting moment. So they unload a ridiculous amount of firepower immediately in the direction that Mac is shooting. Notice that they don't hesitate to do so. There's no there's no call to it. It's just they automatically work as a group to shoot in that direction. Whatever's over there is not going to be there alive anymore. And they wait until they're effectively out of ammo, or you know, until the minigun runs out, before they actually go and check to see if there's anything there. Of course, they find nothing. I bring this up because it again helps to emphasize how tight-knit this group is and the teamwork they have. And, I mean, you could say that that's, duh, if one of your people starts shooting in a direction, you should you could probably say you should shoot in the same direction. But nevertheless, I do think it helps re-emphasize the point that's already been made several times. Why is this funny to me? It wasn't actually originally in the script. In fact, to my knowledge, it's not in the script at all. Indeed, what happened here was the executives were like, you know, you need more gunshots in this film. This is an action flick. 
Remember, this is originally supposed to be a penny, uh, what do they call it, penny nickel uh, action pulp film or something like that. You know, the kind of thing that you, you watch and then you walk away from and nobody cares about ever again. So more gunshots. Okay. Done. <laughs> 53 minutes into the film, it takes off its cloak to heal itself. This is our first real look at the sucker. We see something of its kind of lizard-like skin. We see that it's got the fishnet thing going on. It has this unique aesthetic, which is something they've carried forward into the series going forward, of being practical and high technology while being very tribal as well at the same time. It's a nice mesh, and it works quite well. No pun intended. This is an important in-universe point that's that's made kind of quickly here. These people have absolutely swept a major a major camp. It's probably the only reason why they're able to do anything against this thing, because these are the best of the best. But despite being so good, they're they're working on a back foot throughout most of this film. Come back to that point in a moment. It's also worth noting that you could easily dismiss this in universe as oh these these they're just cracked they've lost it there's there's just there's nothing out here. But these are not the people who crack Mac not not included. These are the people who actually manage to keep it together. If they think there's something out there, something that isn't human, something that's haunting them, there's a decent chance there actually is. Funny thing, in-universe, this actually kind of is true. It's one of the reasons ALF actually continues to uh, treat Dutch's uh, account of this situation as valid. And Dutch himself ends up going on to do other adventures and become part of the anti-predator team, blah, 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 comics, books, etc. <clears throat> so... They hunker in and they change tactics. They even catch it brief- briefly. Question, why, when Dylan and Mac go after it, why don't they just fire on it when they see it in the distance? I shouldn't say it. The only reason I'm saying it is I'm not sure of the gender. Because Yaucha do actually have genders, male and female. And I don't know if this is a he or a she. I guess we could presume it's a he. So I guess I could say he. But the reason I keep saying it isn't actually because of any semantics. It's because of the fact that this is one of the reasons why this film works so well. Because the second act is a, is a horror monster movie. And this hybridization of, you know, your typical Cold War action flick and a horror monster movie actually works really well. And the distinction between the two, you notice they build it up even when they're still in the Cold War section and they still have the military hardware side of things and the, the teamwork and the, the military story drifting in and fading away as they start act two. So we see that the effort was put to mesh, mesh things, things together. And I find myself wondering if this was part of the, the script repass that I mentioned earlier. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know the specifics. Sorry, my, my upper lip itches. Ah, things they never tell you about having a beard. So, they try Heroic Last Stand. That doesn't work. They try to go and get their revenge. That doesn't work. They try to sacrifice themselves to save the group. That doesn't work. This is another reason why I, I find it amusing that certain reviewers said that this is a, uh, a uh, oh god, what's the word they use? Uh, derivative. That this is a derivative work. No. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you on there. Well, it's not completely subversive. It's clear that all the usual tactics and the usual movie moments don't work. They happen, and then they fall flat on their face, which again, I think, is to the benefit of the film. So, 
This then leads to the critical moment of the movie when it hits Act 3. This is Dutch versus the monster. Just the two pairing off by themselves. But what happens is pure luck. Dutch falls into the water, climbs aboard the, the, the shore. I don't know. what It feels like wrong to call it that, but whatever. The muddy embankment. Covers, gets covered in mud unintentionally. And then he can't see him. The predator can no longer see him. This allows him to see the predator without the cloak for an extended period of time. See how the gun operates, see how the scanning operates, and get a feel for how he functions. Why is this moment so important? Knowledge. Many films would have the main character switch up tactics at this point. Try something new because the old thing didn't work. Allow me to privately say that that's always irritated me a little bit. Just because something doesn't work doesn't mean it's immediately invalid. And something fiction likes to do a lot is try something, it fails, and then they never go back to it. Because it's as if it's established that it's just a it's an invalid thing. Occasionally, <laughs> fiction will bypass this, and that's what they do here. He tries the same tactics that they tried back in the second act. The difference is now he has knowledge. Now he knows how he operates, and he knows how he can stay hidden and how he can try and set the traps and layer the traps appropriately. And for all of this operation, he still is a bit on the back leg, but that knowledge evens the playing field. This is the vampire masquerade thing all over again. If you know how a vampire operates, you can work with and through it. I commented on this in Pirates of the Caribbean 3 as well. You notice how I like to always keep threads together between the movies I ruminate on. I assume at least some of you watch all of these. I don't know. Does anybody, does anybody watch these every other Friday? Real question. I'd actually like to know. Anyway. <clears throat> Anywho. So, tries the natural traps, tries them a little bit better, howls the challenge, and as he's waiting, he's he's got an eye on where the fire is and where his spot is, and he's just watching it from what could be considered a perfect ambush position. Then the predator goes right by him. Because of course he does. That's the perfect ambush position. Why wouldn't he approach from that angle? Like I said, a lot of little details that someone clearly thought about when they were making this film. He nevertheless does get the the jump on him because he's invisible. And I should comment on the obvious irony of the fact that he is able to cloak against the person whose main advantage is the ability to cloak. This is also, however, when the hunter, that is to say the predator, finally starts trying, if you're paying attention. Up until now, he's mostly been playing with them. Just, yeah, sure, whatever. This time... Having uh, successfully noticed that he lost him after the river, and noticing that he's still here, and that he got the jump on him, and still can't see him, he deduces very quickly that he cannot actually see Dutch. Therefore, he just starts firing blindly, which is actually a pretty smart strategy given the circumstances, because that gun is a freaking cannon. And he does actually cause Dutch issues in so doing. You know, this is also when, the, you know, we have a little bit of a cat and mouse thing, and we finally see the real scale and scope of this sucker. Again, credit to uh, Mr. Oh, God, I can't remember. Paul. No, I'm right. Don't don't question yourself. Mr. Hall. Credit to Mr. Hall. The, 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 the terror of this giant monstrosity works very well against the otherwise giant and very muscular Arnold Schwarzenegger. He even lifts him up a good foot off the ground during the major encounter. This then leads to... Interesting little tidbit. The Predator decides to go ahead and take off the mask, throw away the cannon, and just fight him hand-to-hand. Why do you think he does this? 
Real question. Now, I know we have the novelization. I know we have the comics and all that. But I'm curious, just based on the film, what do you think? Because I've actually heard multiple interpretations of this before. My interpretation was always the idea that, well, you have proven yourself worthy. A lot of this is biased because of future knowledge. Of it. You've proven yourself worthy of dying, you know, properly. So, I will fight you properly. I will not completely overwhelm you. You get to die, you know, like a worthy prey. Okay, cool. One of the other interpretations I heard, though, is that he is furious, irritated at the fact that nothing here has really been able to challenge him. So he brings himself down to their level just to see if something can actually give him any kind of effort, any kind of sport. This is why he diminishes himself. You'll notice, by the way, cannon gone, cloak off, helmet off, his vision goes to crap. This is actually an interesting point and something that the extended continuity does stuff with. The, the Predator's natural vision is not actually all that great in all environments. It is effectively straight-up infrared heat vision, which is near useless in the jungle. Fun little side note. They actually were going to use infrared cameras for the Predator's stuff in the jungle. They couldn't, because the actual infrared looks like that giant red blob. Anyways, having removed all these advantages, he then proceeds to absolutely kick the ever-living crap out of Dutch. Dutch then clearly and obviously baits him into a trap. The Predator is like, okay, no, I'm going to go around. Nice try. And then Dutch triggers the actual trap. Cute. I did like that, the double-layer trap there. So, the feint and the trap, and it works, and he's dead, and... And later he'll get radiation sickness because of being in such proximity to this sucker. Interesting to think about. And then they get rescued, and that's kind of it. Like, the film, his effect just ends. And I do think that was still to its benefit. While I do like the extended continuity that has blossomed out of this film and the Aliens franchise we'll be talking about next week, the fact of the matter is I think that just ending with the monster killed and the people having been saved was the right call. Don't need to have the ALF people show up. Don't need to do the world building. This is ignoring the fact that they probably didn't plan for any of that. And let's be honest, most of the people working on this film probably didn't expect this to become a franchise. Just like that always happens. Another thing we talked about back during Pirates. That's actually it. That's all I've got. This is probably one of my shortest ruminations for this particular cycle. But I do hope you've enjoyed regardless. I'm going to go ahead and start working on my Aliens rumination now, which I will see you for in about two weeks. <laughs>